1 Corinthians uh, chapter 11, verses 17 to 34. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that you come together as a church. There are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink in judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and ill, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further instructions. This is God's word. Okay, thank you. Thank you for reading. Uh, morning, everyone. If we've not met, uh, my name's uh, Matt Fuller. I'm a senior pastor here. Shall we pray? And then we'll look at this intriguing passage together. Our great God and Father, we thank you for the timeless truths of your word and that you speak them today. And Father, here is a message that we need to hear. It's complicated to understand. It feels distant from us in some ways. And yet you are the same. And our hearts as humans are still prone to the same errors. So, Father, help us understand and avoid these tragic mistakes they were making in Corinth, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. It's always very horrible to be excluded. It's whatever environment uh, it is. Sometimes it's a sort of very physical thing. You know that point on... Um, you're on an airplane and you've taken off and it's, everything's settled down a bit. And so the, um, the, the cabin staff, they're all wandering around. And then um, the class above you 
business or the dizzy heights of first, the curtain comes across. And they say, effectively, don't use aloos. They're aloos. And don't look at our food. It's nicer than yours. Uh, in fact, just don't even look at us, people in ordinary classes. Um, just stay away. Yeah, that's sort of, it's sort of very physical, isn't it? You're excluded. But what's it? You don't care. You sort of smile and on you go. Or, um, or the, modern, the modern one that increasingly is the case if you happen to be in some sort of hotel and uh, you get in the lift and, okay, I can, get, I can press these buttons, one to ten. Uh, but anything above ten doesn't work. doesn't work because you have to have a special pass to go on the floor above. Because we don't just want to keep people out of our rooms. We, we don't want the ordinary people on our floors, to be honest. Um, so you, you, know, you can't go above 10. You have to have a special key to go above 10. You just, you know, ordinary people, you can stay away. And um, you sort of smile and think, oh, well, um, how silly it is uh, in one sense. We don't mind about those things. Socially, it matters, though. Oh, I, I think this always makes me sad, but I think of one woman who used to be here. She didn't know loads of people. She knew her small group. Well, and uh, one summer day, uh, one of the group members was getting married, and so everyone came to the wedding. The whole small group came to the wedding, and then afterwards, they all went off to the reception, and they looked at the seating plan, and yeah, I'm there, and I'm there, and but this poor girl, not there. The only one in the group, not there. Of some mistake, says someone else in the group, and... Um, Message comes forth, oh, and then comes back from the couple, actually, no, we, we didn't invite you. It's a bit mortifying, isn't it? You've turned up, and you're the only one who's left. I mean, that's horrible. And that sort of humiliation, that's the sort of thing that's going on here in Corinth. In our reading this morning, verse 22, some are despising the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing. There's a gulf in wealth in the church in Corinth. And, well, we need to work out quite how, but somehow the wealthy are humiliating those who haven't got any money. They're despising them. Ouch. And so Paul wants to say in this passage, no, look, Jesus welcomes everyone to his table. And we need to be including everyone as well. That's really the point. Jesus welcomes everyone. There's no status. There's no distinctions when you come before the cross of Christ. And we need to welcome all equally. Now, Paul is at his uh, most critical, really, in the letter here. I mean, some of the, look at the strength of the language he uses. Verse 17, um, your meetings do more harm than good. Kind of, in fact, don't come to church next Sunday because it'll be more damaging than if you come. I mean, that's quite something to say, isn't it? Or verse 22, again, the end of it there, you are humiliating, despising the church of God. Ouch. Now, broadly in the letter of 1 Corinthians, I mean, this is just one manifestation of a, a, a Christian church, but it's worldly. It's sort of taken all the 
attitudes of the world, the society they've come from, and brought them all into church. And so in Corinth, it's competitive. It's petty. It retains its sort of status system from the world and brings it inside uh, the church. And that's going to damage unity. And here in chapter 11 in particular, they're importing worldly status. How important are you in the world? They're dragging that into their church meetings. And that's humiliating for many who are there. And again, Paul is going to say that there are no distinctions between the cross of Christ. We all come as sinners. So we all come as equals. The three main blocks to it, uh, it goes a bit like this. The wealthy were excluding the poor. That's the problem, verses 17 to 22. But Christ died to welcome all, 23 to 6. So, conclusion, he'll judge you for excluding others. So the main point is you don't exclude anyone. Let's work through them. First, in verses 17 to 22, the wealthy were excluding the poor. Verse 17, in the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do harm, more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as church, there are divisions among you. Well, to some extent, I believe it. And no doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. Now, I think that verse 19 is probably best taken as sarcastic. Yes, of course, of course. Of course there are divisions among you because some of you are, are wealthier, which means you must, God must love you more. Yeah, yeah, very good, very good. I think is probably best taken as sarcastic. If you hear all the way back when we looked at chapter 1, Paul said, look, there are not many of you who are wealthy, but there are clearly some, and they're probably gathering in the wealthiest of the houses. So what is taking place when they gather, verse 20, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat. When you come together, you're not coming together. (laughs) When you come together, you're being divisive. Deeply ironic. What's going on, verse 21? For when you're eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Of course, context, a bit of context helps it. It's the first century. It's the early church in Corinth. There's no building for them to gather. Where would the church gather? In someone's home. Whose home? The biggest house. Um, Therefore, probably the wealthiest person's house. So that's where they're gathering. Now, no Sunday, of course, to have the day off uh, to gather. So when did they gather? Well, after work. You gather in the biggest person's house at the end of the working day. But probably if you own the biggest, if the wealthiest person in the biggest house, you don't work. Um, You don't need to. You've got plenty of money. And so it seems that what's going on is that they're sharing the Lord's Supper during an ordinary meal. So you can imagine the scenes a bit like this. Um, They're all gathering for church at Felix's house at six o'clock. And uh, people stumble when they, they, people finish work and they sort of stumble out and they make their way to Felix's house for the church gathering. The problem is Felix and all his chums, they've not been at work because they're wealthy. They don't need to work. Um, They've got their trust funds or whatever it may be. They've got plenty of staff 
And uh, so they sort of gather, well, they've got nothing else to do, so they gather early afternoon. In fact, they start at lunchtime. So they start at lunchtime, and uh, they get all the best seats in the house. So they're all gathered around the dining in the dining room, around the dining room table. They've had a few drinks, and they've eaten all the best food since lunchtime. Well, some of the workers turn up, and they sit on the floor in the lounge, and you know, they get a few crab sticks. And, um, and then the sort of really hardest, the lowest in society, they turn up. Uh, there's nowhere for them to sit. They sit on the floor in the kitchen and they get the celery sticks and the remnant of salad uh, and think, well, this is not a lot of fun. Thank you very much. That sort of thing is clearly what's taking place. So distinctions get made when they eat. Well, the, the, the wealthy people eat first. Got no work to do. Where they eat? Well, they eat at the best seats in the central room of the house. Everyone else is in the periphery, sat on the stairs with their cold cheese roll. Um, and what they eat, well, the best food goes first. So in these ways, Paul says, there's a distinction being made. And what it is, it's just manifesting the social classes of society. So everyone gathers in their little groups, and there's no breaking down of class distinction, wealth distinction when they gather as church. Well, look, Paul can say that there's, there's no problem if you've got nice food and you can afford to eat it. Well, that's all right, verse 22. Look, don't you have homes to eat and drink in? If you, if you want to buy in cater, professional caterers and get them to serve you a cordon bleu meal, you can do that. Just don't do it in front of everyone else to make them feel rubbish. Certainly don't do it when you gather at church. Verse 22, you have homes to eat or drink in, or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. So look what you do in your own homes. It is up to you. But when you gather as church, don't humiliate others. Don't make them feel inferior. Look, they know that you're a millionaire and that they're unemployed and in, in desperate straits financially and only relying on benefit. They know that. Everyone knows that. Don't rub it in their faces in church by manifesting what goes on outside of church in church. Don't do that. Different in here. Got to be, says Paul. So the wealthy were excluding the poor. Of course, what isn't super clear from this is did they know? They must have known. Did they realize quite what they were doing? Or, this is my world. These are my people. These are who I associate with. What's the name of that funny little man with the hunchback and his curious wife? I, I, I don't know. I don't know them. I just hang with my people in my world. But either way, whether it was deliberate or somewhat unthinking, the wealthy were excluding the poor. That can't be right, says Paul, verses 23 to 26, secondly, because Christ died to welcome all. Verse 23, you see, for, because, why is it that their meetings are so bad? Why is it that you're despising the church of God? Here's why, verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. 
And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Why is this so bad that you're despising the church of God in this way? Because, verse 23, because of what Jesus has done. Because he died to welcome all peoples in. Three little details. Uh, First, this is a sacrifice. Uh, He did it on that night, the night he was betrayed. That's Passover night. Uh, It's obvious from all the gospel accounts celebrating the night in the past where God gave to his people, the Israelites, a lamb, which is sacrifice. So God's judgment passed over that house. God's judgment falls on the lamb and it passes over the people of the house. Paul has already said in chapter 5, verse 7 in this letter that Christ is their Passover lamb. Those two things are knitted very closely together. So Passover night, it's a sacrifice. Tangentially, on the night that he was betrayed, why is that emphasized rather than the night before he died or on the night that was Passover night? Why on the night that he was betrayed? Because, Corinthians, you're betraying him in your behavior. But it matters. Look, it's a sacrifice. It's a substitution. That's the point is at verse 24. When he had given thanks, he broke the bread and said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. It's a substitution. And in the same way, after, cup, he took, after supper, he took the new cup. And of course, some would know this is not literally. We'll share the Lord's Supper in a moment. It is not literally the body and blood of the Lord Jesus, transubstantiation as some would have it. It can't be that. Because if you wanted to take it literally, this is his body. In this passage, it says, the parallel is this cup is the new covenant in my blood. So if you wanted to take it literally, you'd have to say, I I eat the bread, which is the body of Christ, and I eat the cup. I've never known anyone eat a cup. But if, well, I, I think I did as a child, actually. But I mean, in a church service. Um, you know, it's not literally, no more than when Jesus says, I am the door, I am the vine. It's a metaphor, it's a picture. But it's his body and his blood broken. So it means in the same way he, after supper, he took the cup. In the same way, meaning this is also for you. In the same way as my body is for you. This is for you. The cup with its Old Testament background of God's judgment of violent death. I'm going to endure this for you, says Jesus. You see the story last year, Christina Stratton. One of, um, unfortunately, these stories are too common. Christina Stratton last year stood outside her house in Bakerfield, California. She was chatting to her oldest daughter, uh, uh, early 20s. Um, four younger children, much younger. They're all asleep upstairs in the bedroom. She was just chatting to her daughter who come over to visit for the night. She was sort of saying goodnight and they were chatting away. And then they realized, oh my word, the house is on fire. Something started in the kitchen and the flames, golly, they've spread quickly. And so Christina ran into the house to wake her four children, got them all out of the house, but she died from smoke suffocation. Utterly tragic. But her body was given for them. 
Well, in a similar sort of way, Jesus says, my body is given for you. I'll die. I'll endure judgment. That's the picture of the cup. I'll endure God's anger. That's the Passover lamb picture. I'll do it for you. I'll die so you can live. It's a sacrifice. It's a substitution. And it's, last little detail, it's a covenant. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Don't worry too much about the details, but it, it ties together uh, two Old Testament background, two pictures in the Old Testament. Exodus 24. Exodus 24. Uh, Moses stands before the, the Israelites, and um, it's, it's a bit like a wedding, really. Israel says, yeah, we're committed to the Lord. And Moses says, yeah, and the Lord is committed to you. Um, a bit like a wedding service, but rather than exchanging rings, Moses throws blood uh, over all of them. So a bit muckier, than, uh, and the carpet gets mucky enough as it is, so we won't be doing that here. But um, it's a service of commitment. So um, uh, Exodus 24, Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. But there's that background, but it's new, says Jesus. So Jeremiah 31, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the people of Israel, with the people of Judah. So you put those two things together, and what's going on? God says, okay, it's like a wedding now. Two parties are committing together. But in this new covenant, I'll change your hearts so you can keep it because Israel couldn't in the past. So effectively, God is saying, I'm committing to you, and I'm committing that you'll commit to me, because I'm guaranteeing your commitment by changing your hearts. <laughs> That's what's taking place. And so you have a sacrifice like the Passover, a substitution, the body of Jesus broken, and a new covenant, that is God committing that's what Jesus is saying, I've done for you. And so here Paul says, look, when you celebrate this meal, do do two things. The first, you do it in remembrance of Jesus. You do this in remembrance of me, verse 24, in remembrance of me, verse 25. That is profound meditation on what he's done. And then you proclaim, verse 26, whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim, well, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's the central event. You're proclaiming his work upon the cross, that he is dying as a sacrifice, as a substitute to guarantee a new covenant. That's what you're saying. That's what we're proclaiming. So before we move on, I guess, I guess it is worth asking, how do we feel when we come before the Lord? How do we feel when we come before the Lord, before the Lord's Supper? Nonchalant? Well, you have to remember that his blood had to be shed for you. There's no other way you come before him. Guilty? Well, in which case you remember that his blood has been shed for you. So you can come with full assurance of the forgiveness of your sins. Because at the cross, well, we all come as sinners and we all come as equals. The ground is completely level. 
you heard this story, I don't know if it's true, you heard this story um, that uh, at a church service not long after the Battle of Waterloo, then um, uh, the Duke of Wellington is the most famous man in the world. He's conquered Napoleon, terrified. All his riches and rewards are next door in number one, Apsley House. You can see the, the, what the King of Prussia gave him and what the Russians gave him. He's the most famous man in the world. Extraordinary riches he gets given after his conquest at Waterloo. But not long afterwards, uh, uh, he and his army, they're, they're in a church service, and uh, an ordinary soldier finds himself kneeling at the front of church to receive the Lord's Supper. And uh, he realizes that kneeling next to him is the great man, the duke. And he sort of looks across and says, oh, I'm so sorry, sir, and sort of acts to get up. And Wellington puts his hand on his shoulder and says, no, no, my son. All are equal here. All are equal before the cross of Jesus. I don't know if that's true. I hope it's true. I'd like to think it's true. Because the theology is true even if Wellington never said it. Do you see the logic of why Paul has put this here? Verses 17 to 22, how, how can you exclude people? How can you humiliate people at church when, verses 23 to 26, Christ has died for all equally? There's no distinctions in how we gather as church, in how we share the Lord's Supper together. If you recognize that Christ has sacrificed his life for you and for others, how dare you deny that reality by how you act? If you proclaim the Lord's death, well, live with him as your Lord and welcome others. Jesus died to welcome all, so he'll judge you for excluding others. Verses 27 to 32, here's the, uh, the real warning. Verse 27, so then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, that is, I think, not recognizing equally people around them, well, they'll be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink with the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. The knowledge that Christ has died for all, it must, it must affect how you treat other people. Don't humiliate them. So verse 28, examine yourselves. I don't think that means a, a sort of manic over-introspection. Over Before you ever have the Lord's Supper, you think, is there anything I've ever done? Is there anything I could possibly have done this week that has that, that, that uh, in any sense offended the Lord? I mean, that might be a sensible thing to do, but it depends upon your temperament. Some people are so vastly over-introspective they'd never get up out of, the, out of their seats. But here in this context, it's have you examined yourselves? Have you done something to humiliate someone else here? Are you excluding someone else here? Examine yourselves on that point, is what he's saying. Examine, test the validity of. You might get a, you know, occasionally, you have 50 pound notes, I'm afraid this really isn't. But uh, those are the ones, if you ever have one, the shopkeepers sort of spend ages doing this as if they really know what they're doing. Um, it sort of makes them feel better, I think, uh, that they've sort of wafted it up to the light in some way. Examine yourself, that's what he's saying, examine. Examine how you're treating other people. Because 
Well, this is unsettling, isn't it? Verse 29, those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. That's why many among you are weak and ill. A number of you have fallen asleep. That's what Paul means, he used that phrase for died. So because of the way they're treating one another in the congregation, some people are dying. Wow. Now, you need to be a little bit careful. You can never draw a straight line between an individual's sin and sickness. You can't do that. Jesus says you mustn't do that. It seems that like many plagues in the Old Testament, they fall somewhat indiscriminately upon a community when there's a problem in the community. So you can't draw the one-to-one line. You think of uh, Joshua chapter 7, Achan. Achan steals a bit of treasure and everything goes wrong for the whole of the community because of one man's problem. So don't draw that line. They're sick because they've done something wrong. You can never do that. And yet, Paul is saying that there's sickness in the church and it's due to a sort of sinful pattern that's not being addressed. It may well be that this is the present distress referred to in chapter 7, verse 26, maybe. But the point is, look, if you're humiliating those for whom Jesus died, be very careful. Because the Lord won't tolerate that. Paul is reminding the Christians then and us today, the Lord is not a tame God. Don't make that mistake. You know how um, in the Lord of the Rings, Tolkien does it. He presents Gandalf and you meet him, Gandalf the Grey. And at first the hobbits just think, well, he's a nice old man and he's really good with fireworks. Uh, How lovely he turns up and sends off a few fireworks. Go on, Gandalf, give us a whiz. And they think he's a sort of innocuous old man. But of course they learn, you do something stupid. You do something like Perry and you expose the whole of the company to danger. And he'll turn on you and say, you're an idiot, you're a fool, fool of a took, uh, etc. And on it goes. Because you put everyone else's lives in danger. Was Tolkien writes of Gandalf, merry he could be and kindly to the young and the simple. Yet he was the greatest and wisest spirit to ever walk Middle Earth. And occasionally you would see that he was a radiant flame and a terrifying warrior. You don't underestimate him just because he looks like an old man. He's not tame. The living God is not tame. And if you humiliate and despise those for whom Jesus has died, well, don't do that. How we treat others in church requires serious thought. Don't waft in here in trifling fashion. Don't selfishly sit in church thinking it's all about you. Don't approach the Lord frivolously. He's not tame. Oh, well, you say, I didn't realize God could be so harsh. Yeah, but it is for our good, verse 32. Verse 32, nevertheless, when we're judged in this way by the Lord, we're being disciplined so that we'll not be finally condemned with the world. You see, it's discipline now or condemnation then. You're much better to learn now than ultimately then. 
In fact, you see the steps that you follow in this in the passage overall from verse 28 down. It's um, you, you, above all else, you want to avoid condemnation. So it's better to be disciplined now. But really, you want to avoid discipline now. So examine yourself. It's the sort of logic of it. You, you might say to the schoolboy, look, you don't want to fail your Latin A-level. So it's much better to be put in detention and remedial lessons by the teacher now. But you want to avoid that. So why don't you examine yourself on your vocab and grammar? That's the sort of logic of it. You don't want to go all the way to the end. So Paul says, no, discipline now is better than condemnation then. So there's the logic of it all. The wealthy were excluding the poor, but Jesus Christ died to welcome all, and he'll judge you for excluding others. So quite simply, don't do that. Don't exclude anyone. Verse 33. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Now look, what does that mean for us? Gathered here on Sunday morning. Well, Part of me wants to smile and say, well, we'll all think quite carefully who we sit next to at church lunch this morning, won't we, and how much we take. And is that part of it? Well, not really, I guess. Although perhaps once upon a time, I could think of, um, it's great now, Bella in the kitchen laboring away, others do the same on a, on a Sunday when we have church lunches, and they're great. There was a time, well, let's be honest, the food was pretty rubbish. Um, when we used to buy it in from breaks, it wasn't super nice. Uh, and you would have people saying, Oh, I'm not staying for church lunch. The food's terrible. I'm going out for lunch. No, the point is not the food. The food is pretty mediocre, to put it highly. But the point is we stay together. We need it together. Don't pull apart like that. But I guess the principle is this. Whenever we gather as church, we do need to think carefully. Is there anything we're doing that makes some feel marginalized, left out. We may not be doing it deliberately, but just subconsciously dragging in our worldly values into the church setting. I mean, it's very human. We all have, I think in modern language, affinity bias. We want to hang out with people who are like us. That is instinctive to humans. But in a church? No. No, it's got to look a little bit different. I don't know if where we sit is welcoming to others or excluding. I don't know sometimes how well we do with unfamiliar faces. Are they welcomed, left alone? Do we invite to the wedding someone who is from another nationality and very different from us? Or are they the one that gets dropped off? Ouch. Well, we may be drifting a little from the main point there. But when we gather as church, Jesus welcomes everyone. A demonstration of that is when we share the Lord's Supper. He says, everyone is welcome at this table. We all come as guilty. We all come as sinners. But we all come because he's died for our sin. And I don't know how we get this wrong. I'm honest. I don't think we have massive issues here. 
with wealth discrepancy and people treated differently because of different incomes? I don't think so. But we've got to ask, haven't we, what is it we're doing that may make others feel marginalised, excluded, in Paul's language, despised? Because Jesus welcomes everyone to the table and we've got to, as a church, be like that. Let me lead us in prayer. Our Father, partly we look at this passage and say, wow, oh, oh, I didn't realise that could happen. Father, would we read this and uh, remember once again, you're not a tame God. None of us can walk into your presence. Oh, we can come, sin as though we are, we can come to the Lord Jesus Christ whose body was broken for us, whose blood was shed for us, who died sacrificially as a substitute to bring in a new covenant, guaranteeing that we could be with you forever. But Father, would we not just appropriate that for ourselves and say, well, that's nice for me, without it changing how we treat others? Father, when we gather as a church, would it be crystal clear in our minds that we all come as equal? equally undeserving, equally blessed by the Lord Jesus Christ, that we come as equals. And so, Father, in all that we do, would we demonstrate that to one another, to a watching world, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.